As I begin this morning, I want to revisit both the context and the question regarding fasts. I shared with you last Sunday how chapters 7 and 8 of Zechariah make up the third part of this small prophetic book. Following the call in the first six verses of chapter 1, Chapters 1 to 6 contain those eight, nine vision, night visions that Zechariah had all in one night, leading to the symbolic crowning of Joshua as the high priest. And, and I say symbolic because uh, he didn't even wear the crown. They took the crown and placed it in the temple. Uh, it was symbolic in that the religious leader was becoming the political leader as well. And that was not to be in ancient Judaism. And then there was the mention of the one called branch. A term that would be used of of Jesus, the Messiah who would come. It it almost requires us to be looking forward to to the only one who could legitimately be prophet, priest, and king our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then, these two chapters. This little interlude. Uh, Last Sunday, I hope you'll recall that I mentioned that it was now two years later. Uh, Two men come from Bethel to Zechariah asking a question on behalf of the people of Bethel. uh, And the question had to do with whether or not they should continue to fast and to continue to commemorate the burning of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But Zechariah didn't answer them directly. Instead, he questioned whether their fasts were for God's benefit or for their own. Were they maintaining these rituals to feel sorry for themselves? Or were they doing it to humble themselves before God? Did they even remember that God had asked their forefathers to practice justice and to stop oppressing the weak? Did they think about why God destroyed the city? Since it was because they wouldn't listen to His instructions concerning the proper way to care for other people. Zechariah's message was that if the people would learn these lessons from their fasting, there was hope for the future. God intensely wanted to transform Zion. He wanted to return to His holy mountain to establish Zion as a city of truth. In chapter 7, Zechariah exposed the purely outward and empty ritualism that made up their fasts and their religious worship. As well as pointing out to them their sins and the transgressions which had caused the suffering in the first place. And he also gave them specific warnings concerning certain sins that were still very common. And so, as he begins chapter 8, which is our text for today, Zechariah announces the divine blessing of faithful obedience that's going to be realized during the future Messianic age, a time when God's people would in fact rejoice with great joy and gladness and popularity. So he persuades his listeners to see the future with faith 
and with courage. Three different times. Verse 9, verse 13, and verse 16 of chapter 8. To have that faith and courage like they had two years earlier when they began to rebuild the temple. Now here's the point. If they would transform their lives and if they would avoid behavior that God hates, God's purposes for Jerusalem would in fact happen. Their fasts would be turned to feasts Feast of gladness. And so, Zechariah issues a call to produce fruit. Notice verses 16 and 17. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Verse 16, they're called on to produce fruit that's in keeping with repentance. Interestingly, that was the message 400 years later of John the Baptist, wasn't it? Luke chapter 3 verse 8, to those who had come out, the Pharisees, produce fruit that's in keeping with your repentance. Don't let it just be words. Let it be words and deeds. And he says, first of all, they're to deal strictly in truth. A blessed man, a blessed woman, deals truthfully with neighbors. You see, truth isn't just to control their lips but also their hearts. Second, they're to render honest and peace-producing decisions. Those two positive injunctions there are then balanced by two negative ones in verse 17. Not to devise evil against one another. Uh, the prohibition is to keep evil from being conceived or hatched up in the heart so that it doesn't become a part of our thinking. Fourth, they are not to tolerate any false oaths, any perjury. An oath is a false ho- as a falsehood in biblical times was one of the abhorrent sins. Characterized by deception, untruth, lying which deceives, betrays, falsifies. And the verse closes with a summary to bear in mind that God detests, He hates these evil sins of injustice and false oaths. And notice that it's not merely saying that's wrong. It's saying God hates it. So don't you think what God hates, maybe we as His people, those of us who expect to continue enjoying His blessings, should also be detesting those same things? Now, in terms of the message of this chapter, there is one of those structural clues. It's the words, and the word of the Lord 
He divides chapter 8 actually into two sections, each of which begins with that prophetic formula, the word of the Lord of hosts came. And what we actually have is a prophetic revelation, the report of a prophetic revelation. It's a, it's a message that describes a prophet's private reception of the word and generally it contains a quotation of the message that he actually received. So, as we move into the final section of chapter 8, we come to the 8th oracle in verse 19, which names two fasts that were already mentioned in chapter 7. And to these are added two more fasts, one in the 4th month and one in the 10th month. And the point that Zechariah will make is that they needed to revise their understanding of history. Let's look at God's Word. And the word, of Lord, of, and the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. <clears throat> the tenth month fast commemorated the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Probably within a day. It's hard to believe we can go back and, and get that accurate, but probably within a day, January... 15th of 588 B.C. And the observance in the fourth month that remembered the breach of the walls that happened around July 18th of 586, two years later. Only now does Zechariah specifically address the initial question uh, by those men who came from Bethel. The response, however, is not a simple yes or no which I think that group probably expected. No, Zechariah has recognized that the question essentially asks whether or not the community's present condition, what they were going through, was somehow also to be conditioned by the past in a way that it couldn't be altered. And you know what? I think each one of us has probably asked that very same question at one time or another. Am I always going to have to live under the shadow of my past mistakes? The answer was that although their past should be informing their present, he says they should be living in the present in light of the hopes for the future. They needed to know that if they would observe God's commandments, then God would bless them and cause the pain that was associated with those fasts to go away. This was how their history would be revised. This was how the fast could be transformed to times of feasting. In fact, transformed to times of joy. A term that denoted happiness and delight and enthusiasm. And those former somber fasts 
could be occasions for gladness. A noun that was used earlier in chapter 2 in a call for Israel to be glad in response to God's promise to come again to live among them. So it was that Zechariah was telling them that those fasts could be converted into days of joy and gladness. But how? How? I would love to know how to turn past painful experiences into things that I can now be glad and joyful about. Zechariah's message was that if we begin to realize and if they began to realize those fasts actually commemorated the actions of God that he took because of his desire to bring his people back to himself. Why do we discipline? As a parent. Hopefully we're not just disciplining to inflict pain. We're we're disciplining so that the child will change their behavior. And God, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews, God says that God disciplines us also because He loves us. He loves us. He desires to bring us back into relationship with Himself. And here's what I want you to hear today. If you are still struggling with painful issues, you can know that one day we also will have a new realization that we'll no longer see through a cloud, but we'll see face to face and we'll understand the real reason why we had to go through those some of those personally and corporately painful experiences, some of those disappointments in our life. <coughs> Some of those calamities which we may have brought on ourselves by our own rebellion and disobedience. Some of those will be made clear and will become grateful to God. And we'll see through His loving eyes how God wanted to use them to bring us closer to Him. In light of God's good and gracious promises, Zechariah exhorts. So love truth and peace. In other words, let the truths of God's Word rule in your head so that the peace of God's Spirit can rule in your hearts. Those are the terms that we have to meet if we're going to open the doors for God's promises in any age. Let me stress to you, because I just read a couple articles this week again that were so far off. Articles stressing that you don't have to do anything at all to be saved. It's all God's doing. Now let me tell you, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you can't earn your salvation. But the Bible also says that you are saved to do good works. And more than once in the book of Revelation, 
That was my reading, Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, finishing up the New Testament. More than once in the book of Revelation, it talks about how we will be responsible for the things that we have done. It's not a free ride. Grace isn't cheap. It cost our Lord and Savior His life. And God's promises should produce willing obedience to those precepts, those guidelines, those laws, those rules. And the blessings that we receive in every instance are intended to be incentives to, to even strive to be more holy and consecrate our lives that much more to God's service in His presence. Secondly, their, need, their view of the nations needed to be reversed. That's what he's saying in verses 20 to 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts. There's that phrase again, dividing the chapter into the two major sections. People shall come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying... Let go at once to, let's go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples, strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and entreat the favor of the Lord. Their view of the nations had to be changed. At such a desperate desolate time a horrible time for those people they had returned from exile they thought everything was going to be nice and rosy hunky dory going back home but no they had started the walls only to face opposition and things had laid dormant for a while they were starting probably to wonder if God had forgotten the place of importance that He had for Jerusalem and for His people. But here we have the nature and the magnitude of the deliverance that was appointed for Israel. Not only would fasting become feasting, but what they believed of the heathen nations, uh, how they would go to the abode of the dead? No. Zacharias says they're going to go to the abode of God and seek guidance of the Lord of hosts. That's the mystery. That's the mystery that Paul proclaimed the inclusion of the Gentiles. They couldn't understand that. Why? Because the nations were supposed to be outside of the promise. They weren't supposed to be chosen like they were. Why? They believed that only Jews and only proselytes to Judaism would be saved. And yet the Old Testament is replete over and over again. It talked about how they were chosen not for privilege but for responsibility. They were to be the light to the nations. You see, the skeptical person will often give way 
to the desire to receive the benefits when they perceive that those benefits are from God. But they need to see a difference in our lives for them to believe the message. They need to see that it works. When Zechariah uses the word peoples in verse 20, it's a collective term. And the inhabitants of many cities, it emphasizes great numbers. And verse 21 indicates that finding the favor of the Lord would be a matter of shared importance and urgency. They'll go from city to city spreading the good news and inviting others to go along with them, it says. And here's the hope. That people will realize that no human has the answers. We need to hear that today. No human has the answers unless they're sharing wisdom that comes from the Lord alone. You see, those people knew how to work evil in the world. And I don't think I need to tell you today that there are a lot of people that know how to work evil in our world today. But they also come to know that It can't be done without severe repercussions. So look again with me at verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Ten men. I don't believe it literally means the number after nine. In the Old Testament, ten was a number that stood for completeness. And the intensity of their desire is indicated by the verb. They'll take hold. They'll clench that robe. They couldn't afford to let go. The spread robe was a symbol for the protection of marriage. And to clutch the robe, that was how Samuel, that's what Samuel did uh, in terms of uh, Saul, I'm saying, did grabbing Samuel's robe as as a bid for reconciliation. These were things those people would have understood when Zechariah was speaking. Now listen to me. Many people seem to be disinterested in the Lord and His ways. In fact, they seem to be distanced and they, they seem to be distant and they will distance themselves from people who walk with the Lord and are zealous for Him. But listen to me. Don't think they're not watching. Don't think they're not watching. You proclaim to be a Christian and others know you're a Christian, they're going to be watching your every move. They're going to be listening to everything you say. They are watching to see if you're for real. You see, people really don't care how much you know until they can see and thereby know how much you care. And herein is the challenge of our text for today. 
If we are living the life, if we are walking the walk, it'll show. And we won't be mourning and fasting, but we'll be feasting in the blessings of God. When my grandmother died, I had an aunt who at that time in her life was not living in a relationship with the Lord. All she knew in her head, but she wasn't living an obedient, faithful life. She had no hope. And so she was grieving like one who had no hope. No hope of ever seeing my grandmother again. And I was young. And I said to my dad, what's going on? I mean, everybody in the family was tearful. But that particular aunt was just grief-stricken. And my dad said to me two things. And I came to know that both of them were in fact true. One, she felt guilty for the way she had treated her mother for so many years. But secondly, she had no hope of ever seeing her again. Now praise God, she changed. And she lived out the latter part of her life in a faithful, obedient relationship with God. And she was the one who shared with me that she felt so guilty when Grandma died. You see, it's not that we don't grieve. It's not that we don't experience a sense of loss. But, but it's that we also can have that joy in our hearts of knowing that we'll see that loved one again. That they're in a better position, a better place. That's why when my mom passed away, 4 o'clock in the morning when the call came and I took it from my sister, when I got off the phone, Jesse asked me, are you okay? And I looked at her and I said, actually, I'm better. Because now I know my mom is no longer suffering. No longer fighting to get a breath of air. No longer anxious when she had to get moved from the bed to a wheelchair. And from the wheelchair to the, into the bathroom and back to the wheelchair. And her oxygen would drop out. No longer suffering. People are listening. They're watching. And if we are listening... If we're opening our ears, if we're opening our eyes, and especially opening our hearts, our view of people will be changed. You remember what the Apostle John said in his letters? You cannot love God who you don't see if you're not able to love people that you do see. <coughs> Who's that include? Jesus said it includes our enemies. It includes those who are trying to persecute us. So here's my challenge for you this morning. 
You and I need to be living in such a way that people will say, we can see. We have heard that God is with you. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for not being obedient as we should be. For harboring ill feelings. For sometimes running our mouths in ways that harm and destroy others. Instead of words of encouragement and words of love. Help us to live lives so that other people will see that God is with us and will want to be a part of what we have. And we can share with them the good news. Motivate us to this end, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is going to be Jesus I Come. We're going to sing two verses. Let's stand and sing.